Nina Freeman, what is your favorite game? My favorite game is Final Fantasy X-2. What can I do for you? with probably most people in my generation and generations before me. I've been playing games since I was very young. Um, I think, I feel like whenever people ask me this, I give a different answer for like what the first game I ever played was. But I remember being really young and going to the mall with my mom. And while she would go shopping, I would usually end up sitting in the Scholastic store because they had a bunch of computers where you could sit and play their games for free. So, you know, like, 90s edutainment games, basically. Um, And those are, like, kind of the earliest games I remember playing, actually. And then I know my family, we got a computer. I must have been, like, seven or eight, I think. Um, And we got a computer, and we had Myst and this weird game that I think was, like, a tactics game. I barely remember it, but it was called Urban Assault, and it was a weird alien spaceship shooter game so i just remember that game and missed <laughs> um and so those are kind of my early earliest memories of games and i don't know i guess i've just been playing a lot of games ever since what can you remember from uh that that other that time then besides uh missed like was there any kind of understanding games that you kind of remember for the pc that you were playing at that time um yeah so missed and urban assault i definitely i had some weird PC racing game that I used to play a lot. I can't remember what it was called. I've always been kind of into racing games, and I think it was because of that one. It was an old 3D racing game. I wish I could remember what it was called, but I liked those early PC racing games. Um, And also, I remember playing a lot of The Sims when it first came out. I forget what year that was, but that was one of the early computer games that I played quite a bit of um and I know obviously The Sims was quite popular so I know a lot of my friends were playing it um and also just like you know whatever were the free games on my computer I remember playing I think on my friend's Mac there was this weird cat and mouse game that was just like a tiny game that I think came installed with the OS um and that like weird pinball machine, uh, pinball machine game that you could play that came with early, uh, earlier Windows computers. I remember that. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, for me it was like you know I played some of the big stuff, but I also remember playing a lot of like weird tiny games that I would find on my computer, like the ones that came with the operating system, um, or the games that I would find at the library on the computers, or the games that were like the Scholastic edutainment games that were at the mall. Um, I played a lot of those, um, and also, you know, I was playing console games sort of around the same time. I know my first console was the Sega, 
uh, Sega Genesis uh, that was given to me uh, by my mom's friend, actually, because she didn't want, she thought her son was playing it too much, so she gave it to me. <laughs> um, so I guess that was my first console. Like, like, what games were you playing with the Sega Genesis, well, Mega Drive here in Europe? Yeah, I was playing, so, yeah, so they had had it, um, my mom's friend and her son, and so I basically just inherited all the games that he had. Um, and it, was, it was a whole pile. I don't think I played a lot of them that much. The ones I remember specifically were whichever... There was a Street Fighter game, I think. I forget which one. Um, it must have been. Um, and also, there was another fighting game. I can never remember the name, but it was sort of like a weird almost like a fantasy fighting game. And I remember, like, the all the characters had sort of, like, powers, and it was, like, almost like a weird sci-fi fantasy fighting game. I can never remember what it's called. I was, Anyways, I was, I was thinking it was Virtua Fighter, but when you said fantasy, I just thought, no, that's not Virtua Fighter. Maybe it was Virtua Fighter. I'll have to look it up. I can't remember, but I played a ton of that game. Um, and also, obviously, Sonic 2, I think, was the one I... I played a ton of Sonic 2, uh, like crazy. I looked up every cheat and everything and I played it from start to finish I feel like so many times. <laughs> uh, I really loved that game when I was a kid. Uh, and also um, The Lion King. The Lion King on the Sega Genesis was, that was probably my favorite Sega Genesis game I, I think. Um, I played a lot of that game. Uh, I was like a huge, huge Disney uh, fanatic as a child so that was something I, I got a lot of enjoyment out of and I actually still will play that Lion King game from time to time because we still have a Sega Genesis um, I'm looking over at it right now it has Sonic 2 in it actually um, but I have recently replayed that Lion King game and it's still pretty fun <laughs> when did that come out like, it must have come out at the same time as the movie obviously but like when did that come out like ooh yeah I don't really remember I because I had it, it was one of those games that I just kind of inherited from that, that guy, so it's not like I got it when it came out or anything, oh, it was yeah. just part of the pile that was given to me, basically. Ah. Um, and I never actually bought any games for the Sega Genesis, I just played the games that I had inherited, <laughs> basically, forever. Because um, I guess soon later I got an N64, and I did get some new games for that, but I never had that many. Um but yeah, I never got... I played those original Sega Genesis games so many times and never got any new ones. <laughs> um, like, what N64 games did you get with the system? Like, I'd, I'd assume, like, Super Mario 64 would have been one of them. Yeah, I guess... Yeah, it was Christmas the year the N64 came out, and my extended family on my mom's side pooled some money together to buy it for me. Um, and I remember... I'm pretty sure they bought me the system... I think it was the black version of the N64, and I think they got me Mario 64 with it as well. I, that's like the first game I remember playing on that system, so they must have got it for me that Christmas. Um, but yeah, that was the first one, and then I think very soon after I got Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, um, I think those were the two games that I played the most on my N64 among a few others but yeah i think mario 64 that i feel like that was just the standard one that like you know if if your family members were going into the game store that was probably the one that they were trying to sell you <laughs> that was just like yep this is the one you get with your n64 um so that that's the one i had ah, well, well to be fair mario 64 is such a uh standard bear in terms of launch games for any system anyways it's just oh yeah it's just nothing has touched it since. Not, mm -hmm. not in terms of it's, not just in terms of its genre, but 
for all of games. So yeah, it's wh- it's an not? incredible incredible uh, game with really high production value, great design, and it certainly has stood the test of time. And I know people still play it a lot, so it's pretty amazing. Jesus, that's, I've just realized talking about it, it's it came out twenty years ago this year. Yeah, it's pretty old now. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. It's insane. And here, here was me thinking like, well, must have been like four, five years ago. Or so like Metroid was twenty odd years, twenty mm-hmm. odd years ago. And he, yeah. here we are. Here we are thinking now. Super Mario sixty four is twenty odd years old. Jeez. Yeah, time and, keeps moving <laughs> for some reason. And here we are celebrating Zelda's thirtieth anniversary. Yeah, yeah, that was cool. And Pokemon. I think and, it was the twentieth anniversary the yes. other day. Yes. Yeah. Actually, speaking of Pokemon, I remember. Uh, Game Boy, the Game Boy Color. I had that when it came out. I wish I could remember the year. I was super young when that came out, too, I think. And Pokemon was literally the only game I ever owned for my Game Boy, <laughs> but I played it so much uh, that I guess I didn't, felt, I didn't feel like I needed any other game when I was a kid for my Game Boy, which is kind of funny in retrospect. What, what color did you get? I had the, the clear purple one. Oh... Oh no! I mean the Pokemon. I mean Pokemon games. Oh, of Pokemon! Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had the clear purple Game Boy Color system, and I got Pokemon Blue when that came out. Ah, fair enough. What, what was your starter Pokemon? My starter was Charmander. It has always been Charmander. Although I have a Squirtle plushie, and I feel like Squirtle has grown on me over the years, but I I always used Charmander as my starter back in the day. Hmm. Fair enough. Fair enough. That being said. Squirtle Squad for life. Yeah. <laughs> I think I was just so, like, moved as a child by that Charmander episode in the anime. I know. Uh, oh, yeah, it was so sad. So I was like, I want a Charmander for myself. Because I'm pretty sure I watched the anime before I played the game, I think. I think most uh, people, though, to be fair. Yeah. So I remember, like, thinking that when I was playing that game, I would, like, think about the episodes and what the Pokemon were doing in the episodes. And that definitely colored <laughs> the way I felt about them when I was playing the game. Uh, well, to be fair, Charmander did kind of grow up to be a kind of teenage shit. So, <laughs> first, Charmeleon just being eh, and then just Charizard yeah. just being piss off. Yeah, it, Charmander did get angrier and angrier. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, so going forward, then, like PlayStation was obviously a big deal for you. Um, like going to that a little bit. Yeah, actually, I didn't. When did I get a PS1? I got a PS1. I guess I must have gotten it when it came out. I barely remember. Um, But, yeah, it's funny that my favorite game is a Final Fantasy game, but I actually never played any of the Final Fantasy games on PS1 um, when I had one. I I guess I just wasn't aware of them. When I got a PS1, I was playing um, Spyro and um, Crash Bandicoot and... I feel like those are the two games that I played on my PS1. I don't remember any other games. Um, but I played those games and followed them. You know, they released, like, a bunch of sequels, so I would just continue to get those. And still to this day, I think Spyro is still kind of one of my favorite games. I mean, it's certainly not a perfect game by any means, but I find it really charming. And it was one of those games where the, like, aesthetic of it and just the coloring and the world, I was so charmed by as a kid and I still think it's a pretty beautiful game and like kind of silly and cute um and that that really drew me in so that was kind of the game I played the most um and I remember thinking it was like 
figuring out the puzzles, it all just felt so mysterious to me. So I spent, I put a ton of time into that game when I was really little. Um, I have a lot of fond memories of it. Uh, so PS1, definitely the Spyro days for me. <laughs> To be fair though, Spyro and Crash was the golden era of platforms. So if we were talking about like, yeah. Mario sixty four being the the peak of it of uh, games, then at least after that, which or actually no, Crash came out before Mario sixty four, didn't it? Did it? Uh, I I don't remember to be honest, but I, I definitely played Mario sixty four first. I imagine Mario sixty four came out first. Yeah, because I think I mean that game like revolutionized the idea of like you know three D games and what you could do with 3D games. Um, so I'm pretty sure that came out first. Mm, yeah. I mean, like, Spyro definitely came out after, but, like, <laughs> uh, but I digress. Like, Spyro and Crash were just basically the golden era of P- of PlayStation platformers. Like, nothing could touch them. Yeah. Like, and honestly, I was pretty dependent on, like, what games my parents would buy me, basically. <laughs> um, so that meant that I didn't, you know, I think that's kind of why I didn't end up playing those earlier Final Fantasy games and stuff, because they weren't, the games that um, people would try and sell my parents when they went into the store to get me something. Um, so a lot of my games on those consoles, when I wasn't able to like buy my own stuff, were like sort of the big ones at the time. Like I know Spyro and Crash were really popular, um, so that was that was what I got. Um, didn't have too much of a choice, <laughs> but I'm lucky that they were both really fun for me to play. <laughs> they were really silly fun. I love them both. Yeah. Not, I really wish I could play Spyro again. I've played Crash Bandicoot uh, a bit recently, but like I've mm-hmm. not, I've not played Spyro in some time though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually uh, was replaying it a year or two ago because we have a ton of older systems at this apartment, so I can kind of set them up if I want. And I do have a PS1 somewhere. I'm, like, looking around for it. Or maybe we played it on PS2. I forget. But, I yeah, we played it on PS2, and uh, it was fun to, like, check that out again and kind of relive that part of my childhood a little bit. You mentioned how you missed out on those Final Fantasy games, on those PS1 mm-hmm. Final Fantasy games. And, like, I've mentioned this before, but, like, I feel like uh, I, I've missed out on the kind of big, strong PS1 games, like the big, like, not triple-A hitters, although I guess you could say that there was those as well, but, like, I missed out on those big, heavy-hitter titles on the PS1, like mm-hmm. Metal Gear, Resident Evil, yeah. Silent Hill, and yeah. Final Fantasy, and, like, was that, did you have that sense as well? Like, you felt like you were missing out? I mean, at the time, I was so young, I just didn't know, like, I wasn't aware those games weren't being marketed to me, or in spaces where I was looking around, really. Mm. Um... You know, for me, growing up, I had a couple of other friends who played a lot of video games, but, you know, none of us were, like, rolling in games or enough money to buy a ton of games. So, like, I only had access to a few that were basically given to me around Christmas of each year. Um, So a lot of those bigger games, I feel like I just missed out on because of, like, timing, because maybe they weren't popular around Christmas, or when my parents went to the store, they weren't you know, being sold as aggressively, and they just didn't come across them. Um, so I think for me, like, I just wasn't even aware. Um, they weren't in my sphere, I guess, of awareness. Um, so I never fit, felt like I missed out, I guess, until later in life when, you know, I would meet people, and I was, I'd be like, oh, I'm really into games, and they would be like, oh, did you play, you know, Resident Evil? And I would be like, I don't even really know what that is. Obviously, now I do, but, you know, 
when I was, you know, in, in college or whatever, I would be like, what's that? And I just, I was never aware of it. Um, so I guess I felt like I missed out later, although I've definitely caught up on a lot of that stuff now that I'm, like, working in games and just, you know, to be aware of the history. Um, but at the time, I don't know, it was just, like, not accessible to me, so mm. I didn't know. <laughs> Hindsight being twenty twenty and all. Like, I was, I was the same, to be fair, like, um... Like I didn't really know of these games at the time, and I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure about well, besides Metal Gear Solid, but even then I wasn't that particularly fussed. And I say that now with Metal Gear actually being one of my favorite series. Um, yeah. And it's it's weird to kind of think back on that now because like I like like I said I wasn't aware of those games at that time uh, as uh, you were as well. But like, um, it's it's weird, but at the same time kind of for the lack of a better term, nice to go back and finally play these games for the first time. Like, I, I only... <laughs> last year, I only finished Metal Gear Solid 1 for the second time ahead of the campaign coming out. And I've promised myself that at some point this year, I'm finally going to finish Final Fantasy 7. I have to. Yeah. have to. It, it, totally. It must be done. It will be done before the remake. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've had similar experiences where, like, I played... Silent Hill 2 for the first time this past year and now that's one of my favorite games and I was just like I can't believe like I hadn't played this until now but I was also glad I didn't play it until the last year because like having now made games for a while and just being more aware of like the kinds of things I'm interested in as a designer I saw a lot of stuff in that game that was really inspiring to me as a designer specifically Um, so I was glad that you know, I was able to come to that fresh for the first time, having, you know, spent time practicing game design and thinking about it a lot and being able to see what that game does so effectively, especially with storytelling and, and environment and tone. Um, so that I feel really lucky that I actually got to wait and play that um, later in my life. So what with the PlayStation 2 era, like, like how was that for you? Like, besides, mm-hmm. besides uh, Final Fantasy? Yeah, I guess... The PS2 era is probably when I really, really got into games. Because, you know, with my generation, I, f- I felt like basically everyone was, like, playing a game with a Game Boy or a PS1 or an N64 or whatever. It was like, you know, we all played Mario or whatever, or, like, we all had been to our friends' houses and played Mario or Zelda or whatever. So that was, like, kind of common knowledge, Um And then when the PS2 was around, I was a little older. I guess I must have been in middle or high school when it came out. Um, And that was when I started to be more aware of games and started to have the ability to be like, oh, I want that game. Like, I can go get it for myself. Um, So that opened up a whole new world of, you know, not just getting games at Christmas from my parents, like being able to kind of find stuff that really appealed to me personally. Um, And I think that's when I kind of developed or started developing sort of my taste in games. Um, So, you know, I'm remembering, uh, like, when I had my PS2, one of the first games I played on it must have been Final Fantasy X, which to this day I cite as, like, a pretty influential game for me as a designer. Um, And that that was, like, one of my, my... the games I always think of when I think of PS2. Um, and also Xenosaga. So, like, it's when I discovered JRPGs, which are very important to me, and when I discovered and started thinking about the idea of, like, games as 
really good at storytelling. Because even though, you know, something like Zelda Ocarina of Time has an interesting story, it never, I never felt passionate about it like I did Final Fantasy X, for example. I never felt as invested in the characters as I did in that game, um, in Final Fantasy X. So I think with PS2 came my realization that, like, oh, I really care about games that have um, these kind of really interesting character-driven stories. Um, so that that is definitely a really important uh, era for me. Um, you mentioned your kind of uh, kind of fan obsession with Disney. I have to ask, mm-hmm. Kingdom Hearts. Oh yeah, <laughs> Kingdom Hearts is one of those games for me that uh, I don't know. Like I would never really. I don't think I would cite it as a design inspiration now, but it's just one of those games that like I really love <laughs> and like I can always go back to and have a ton of fun with. Um, and I just, I think that that game is really magical, and I remember I got it on Christmas, and when it came out, and I was so, so excited about it. It was, I was old enough to have been, like, you know, I found trailers about it, and, like, it was being advertised, and I was just getting super hyped for it. So I got it, and I remember I opened it, and I didn't even open any of my other Christmas presents. I just, like, beelined up to my room, into my, like, little game computer room, and started playing it immediately. Like, nothing else mattered. <laughs> um, and I also think it might have been the first video game that made me cry at the end. <laughs> uh, I was, like, really upset at the ending of that game. Um, so, yeah, lots of emotions for me tied up uh, in Kingdom Hearts. That was a, a, a big deal for me. <laughs> um Pro tip for anyone listening, stay tuned for later in the season. We have a Kingdom Hearts episode coming. So. Oh, yay, that's awesome. So, yeah, um, moving on from that then, like, how you first got in the industry side of things? Like, how did that pan out? Um, so, a few years ago, maybe three years ago now, um, basically, long story short, I had graduated undergrad in, God, what was it, 2012, I think? Um, with a degree in English literature, Um, and I was doing poetry at the time. I was working in the New York poetry scene. I was interning at a place and writing poetry and submitting stuff, blah, blah, blah. Um, And also, when I graduated, I got this job for the government as a data analyst. Um, So, you know, I was kind of trying to make it work, thinking I would go in the direction of poetry um, or maybe, like, teaching English or something like that. and I was kind of doing that, but, you know, I was working my job that wasn't related, and I was kind of like, uh, do I, like, what do I what do I actually want to do? Like, do I really want to, like, be an English teacher or pursue poetry full-time? Like, really, what I'm interested in is just writing. Like, I just want to write. That's all I really want to do. I want to tell stories. Um, and as I was kind of, like, learning this about myself, I actually got, like, diagnosed with this chronic illness, and suddenly had a bunch of free time and was kind of like reevaluating my life in a lot of ways. Um, and it's like so, so many chaotic things happened at once that led me to games. <laughs> so I got really sick. And then I met a bunch of new friends and these friends were making games. Um, and I specifically Emmett Butler and Diego Garcia. Um, they were working on a game called Heads of Hot Dogs um, that they're making for uh, iPhone that ended up being released with Adult Swim. Um, and I would go hang out with them and watch them while they were working on this game because, you know, I was, like, kind of sick and I was kind of, like, just trying to take it easy most of the time. So I would just go hang out with them and, like, see what they were doing. And as I was watching, I was like, oh, this is interesting. Like, 
making games actually seems like something that people actually do. And like, I had never really thought about that before. And I'd always loved games. Um, so I kind of started thinking about that from a different perspective. And then these friends started showing me games like Dysphoria and Kentucky Route Zero and Gone Home. And I was like, whoa, these games are telling really interesting stories. And this is the kind of storytelling that I want to do. I want to be telling stories like this. Um, so I guess with my newfound free time, I started to teach myself how to program just to kind of be like, okay, like maybe I'll give this a try. Um, and I guess I just ended up sticking with it, um, and kept making games, started making games right away, started going to game jams with these new friends, um, and kind of just threw myself into it, because I was like, I'm sick, I don't know what I'm doing with my life, like, I want to figure something out, um, and games I suddenly felt really passionate about, and I found something to be passionate about there, um, as a writer, so I did a bunch of game jams, made a bunch of games, um, including Ladylike and How Do You Do It, some of the earlier stuff um, that I did with, with my friends. Um, and I don't know, I haven't looked back since. Uh, and then, you know, a couple of years later, I was showing Ladylike and How Do You Do It at a party at GDC. And that's when I met um, Steve and Carla from Fulbright. And then I later now I'm working for them. Um, and of course, there was a bunch of stuff in between. I worked with Code Liberation in New York. Um, they helped me a lot, especially in learning how to program so I could make games. Uh, and I, I did grad school at NYU in the meantime for a year and a half um, and got my master's in integrated digital media. Um, so I guess over the past three years, I just kind of threw myself into it. And now I'm here. Mm, just flying head first into the abyss basically yeah <laughs> i definitely took the very aggressive approach <laughs> um, that has always been my style if i really feel excited about something i just want to go for it and with games that is what i did Let's jump into your favorite game, Final Fantasy X-2. First Final yes. Fantasy in quite a few years, actually, on the show. Um, cool. So, yeah, we mentioned how, or you, um, you mentioned how you were playing the Final Fantasy games on the PS One. So, Final Fantasy X was your first experience with the series. Yes. So, like, how 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 did you find Final Fantasy X? Because, like, you met, you said it's such a design influence on you. But other than yeah. that, like, what else stood out for you with X? So. I guess kind of the funny, interesting way to start this story would be to say that I found Final Fantasy X. I'm pretty sure I was with my friends, Melanie and Brittany, who I, I kind of played all these games with when I was younger, um, and we rented it from Suncoast Video. <laughs> it was like the local kind of downtown you know, video and game rental store um, in our small suburban town. Uh, and I remember we picked it up because we were like, it's so pretty looking on the cover. <laughs> we're like, who's this pretty boy? Um, so, yeah, we rented it. And I remember, like, starting it and seeing that opening cutscene and just being like, what is this game? <laughs> like, this is amazing. Um, I was just kind of blown away by it sort of visually at first. And then 
realized that the story was really exciting to me, sort of as we played, you know, the first kind of intro to it when we rented it. Um, and then I was like, okay, I have to go buy this game. So I bought it. Um, and then I just played and played and played until I beat it. <laughs> and yeah, I adore that game. And I just, I love that I actually discovered it at a video rental store. I think that's kind of a funny, <laughs> funny thing that I don't really, I don't know. I haven't rented anything in years. So it's kind of funny to think about that. It's a funny aspect of how people can find games that they love in video stores. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's like, I, um, I I realize it's going to be the worst example because like by I know by right this is one of the worst games ever but I can't help but love it. So it's okay. All games have some merit in some sense. <laughs> South Park Rally. I know by definition <laughs> it should be a really sick game and by right it is. But dear fuck, I just love that game so much. I have never played it. It's so good in a really bad way it's <laughs> it's uh it's it takes solace in the fact that at least it's not the actual south park game that came out uh on the n64 and ps1 it's just yeah objectively it's a really bad game but i can't help but love it anyway yeah i i totally understand there are a lot of things that i know are bad that i also really love for various reasons that is totally normal <laughs> And I found that in a in a, a video store, uh, just on the yeah. from where I am, and mm-hmm. like I kept renting that as often as I could. Well, not as often. Yeah. I, I, I did kind of want to mix it up, but uh, but, but um, about what was it? Five, six years ago, I finally got a copy, and I have it here, uh, sitting in my wardrobe somewhere. Oh, uh, that's awesome! So I'm quite happy I have that now. Problem is, I have no systems to play on because my PS2 is well, my PS2 is here, but like I can't find the cables for it, and my control, my my controls just kind of foobard, and I don't have a PS1 anymore. So uh, that's tough. That that is tough. Um, but yeah, um, going back to Final Fantasy X, and like, what else stood out to you about that game that made that made you think? This is a really special game. So I guess what really drew me in, I mean, it, you know, obviously what, what attracts me to the game now is quite different from, I think, what attracted to me, retracted me to it when I first played it as, like, a teen. Yeah, sure. um, I think when I was a teenager, it was, you know, it was a game that had a story about these really kind of well-defined characters that I felt like I could relate to. So I remember being young and, like, seeing Riku and being like, oh, I'm just like her. Um, And they felt really human and real to me. And it's funny because those are the kinds of stories that I still am actually attracted to in a lot of ways um, as an adult. And back then, I I still felt that pretty pretty deeply where I, I wanted to be playing games where there was some character that I could really latch onto and feel like I could get close to. Um, and, you know, the story is full of drama, and it has a love story, and it's just got all this really nice stuff, and it's beautiful. So I think the whole package really was, like, kind of the perfect game for me at that point in my life. Um, you know, I was kind of growing out of, or at least I felt like I was growing out of stuff like Mario games. Um, obviously, I, I love them now, but as a teen, I was like, oh, I'm too cool for that, or whatever. Um, and it felt more mature as well, and it it kind of made me feel cool to play it, like I had really found something special, because um, I didn't know really anyone else who was playing Final Fantasy games at the time, so I was like, oh, like I found this cool thing with my friends, and like now this can be like our cool little thing that we have together. Um, 
Whereas now as an adult, like, you know, I look at it more as a game designer and can see what I think is interesting about it from that perspective, which is a, a, some different things, although still including the character-driven narrative stuff, which I've always been uh, passionate about. But yeah, when I was a kid, it was all those reasons, just feeling like I was special for knowing what it is and loving the drama and loving characters. So I... Um, so I should admit up front, like I've I've only played a few hours of Ten Two for those uh-huh. time. Um, like back in the PS Two days. Um, and this was when was it? I was about I was about ten or eleven at the time, and mm-hmm. for some reason I I just really wanted to play it to the point I begged my sister to come back home uh, from Manchester in England uh, with a copy of the game back here in Northern Ireland where I am. I was just like, please bring a back copy, please bring yeah. back a copy. And like, I'm not, I wasn't even a Final Fantasy fan at the time. It just seemed really interesting. And I remember, yeah. and for some reason, I'm like, we've, like on the show, I had, it was me and one other guest who actually works at Square Enix last year um, on the show. And we talked about how box arts can just appeal to us. And I, honestly, God, like, before Final Fantasy fourteen, the covers of every Final Fantasy game in Europe was so minimal and <laughs> and I honest to God that's what honestly attracted me to Final Fantasy ten too. Yeah, that that definitely has an impact for sure. <laughs> um but yeah, I, I remember playing it and um just being so um can't find the right term for it, but like I just remember enjoying what I had played at that time. But like I said, mm-hmm. I can't remember specifically what I enjoyed of it at that time because, like I said, it's been but what ten, twelve years ago, something mm-hmm. like that. So, anyways, basically, for those who've not really played Ten Two, and for whatever reason, why not? Because, like, at this point, there is a HD collection for PS Three, Four, and it's really good. I have the PS Three and PS Four ones, and they're both really good. Mm, like I've I've been playing Final Fantasy Ten and uh, or well bits. Of of it in and out and it's really fantastic mm-hmm. um but anyways but i digress for those who have not played it elevator pitch me on or ele- elevator pitch anyone on 10 2 final fantasy 10 2 is a sequel to final fantasy 10 um and it is about the so basically in final fantasy 10 the protagonist is this girl yuna um there's also a protagonist Titus, but I'll focus more on Yuna because she's the focus of 10-2. Um, and in 10, she's sort of on this pilgrimage, um, and there's this huge enemy in the world that's making the world a miserable place, and Yuna is essentially one of the very few that can challenge this enemy um, and bring peace to the land. And in the end, she obviously succeeds. Um, not much of a spoiler because obviously there's a happy ending in a sense. Not a totally happy ending. I won't spoil that part. Um, but she succeeds in her mission, and the world is brought to a sort of temporary peaceful state. So Final Fantasy X-2 uh, takes off from there, where it focuses on what Yuna is doing after she has sort of completed this huge mission, um, and what's she doing next. Um, and it sort of starts out by introducing the fact that she is now a sphere hunter, so she's kind of like a almost a pirate. Her and her friends are basically going around and collecting these old spheres that are kind of like sort of archaeological finds, Um, and they have these old videos from years and years ago, and I guess they are worth a lot of money, so these girls go around uh, searching through temples and old places to find these spheres, Um, all the meanwhile sort of focusing on what Yuna's life is like after she's accomplished this huge mission and is now sort of a celebrity in in her world, Um, and it's sort of how she grows and comes to terms with 
um, losing a specific loved one potentially and just her relationships with people and how they've been impacted by what happened in 10. Um, and it's, it's, it sort of focuses on her and her two friends in their little Sphere Hunter crew. 10-2 is the first numbered sequel for Final Fantasy. Mm-hmm. Like, how, do you, how, do you, how did you see that at the time? Like, and Yeah, just basically uh, tying it back into the game itself. Like, how it deals with the aftermath of saving Spyra in 10. Yeah, actually, I remember... Um, because, you know, I'd played Final Fantasy X in fall before X-2 was announced. Um, and I remember I remember when it was announced. It must have been, like, uh, 2003 or four. I forget. But actually, when I was working on Civil, the last game that I released, I was, like, going on the Wayback Machine and reading all my old blogs. And I came upon some blog entries about Final Fantasy X-2 when it had, like, been announced and when it came out. And so I kind of got these memories refreshed recently. And then these blog entries, I would write about how, like, I was like, oh, like, we saw the trailer, and oh, my God, me and Brittany and Melanie were freaking out. We couldn't believe it. Like, all our favorite characters are coming back. We're so happy. Um, And sort of writing about how, like, you know, there would be, like, leaked footage or, like, we would think people were posting spoilers before it came out or whatever. And we were like, oh, do we, like, look at it or not? And I remember it was just this big thing for me and my friends that this game was coming out. And we were getting so excited about it. And any time any word was breathed about it, we would, like, basically freak out. Uh, And I remember we pre-ordered it. And we, by mistake, showed up a day early to go buy it. It wasn't even out yet. And the store clerk, it was at GameStop. Or maybe, was it at GameStop? I forget. It was at a game store. And the clerk felt really bad for us and gave us free Final Fantasy X-2 posters. <laughs> uh, and then we came back the next day and actually bought it. Um, so for us, like, we didn't know it was the first numbered sequel. We were just like, oh, my God, a sequel to, like, our favorite game. And all our favorite characters are coming back. And we were just, like, super excited about it, just in kind of the most stereotypical teen way possible. <laughs> um, like, just to kind of uh, repeat the question, uh, mm-hmm. the second part of the question I asked there, because I should have kept that. Um, how, 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 how do you think... Uh, well, basically, how do you think it dealt with the aftermath of saving the... Oh, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, sorry. Um, no so I thought... I, at the time, I don't think I was thinking too deeply about it, because I was like a teen. I didn't really know what was going on most of the time. I can't remember what I thought then, but now re- I've replayed it a bunch of times since, and I think it's it's really interesting what they did with that story and how they explored the world of Spira um, during, you know, the calm. Because they really, like, they weren't afraid, and I don't think, you know, Final Fantasy games do this a lot, but they weren't afraid to get into the, the politics of that and to sort of take these um, political, not parties, but political groups of people and sort of expand upon what they were in 10 and to think deeply about how such a sort of world-changing event would change their ways and change who sort of wanted to be with what. So, like, for example, there's a ton about religion in these games and, and... Yevin is like their god and I just thought it was really interesting where like it makes a lot of sense where if such a catastrophe happened like people would question their faith for example um and also like people would question the faith and they would question their leaders and everyone would kind of want to start on a new leaf but 
because we're all human, it's hard to let go of our past. So we get so embroiled in that that it ends up just sort of like becoming this huge political drama. And I thought that the nuances of that and the way they represent it in the game is is pretty interesting. And that really ends up kind of being the focus of Ten Two and how Yuna, as a public figure and as a celebrity, um, has to deal with this and kind of like pick sides in some ways, but it also makes you think about the act of her picking sides. Like, does she side with the the new Yevon, so the religion, and how it's evolved, or does she side with, um, uh, what are they called? The other group that's sort of like the newfangled, non-religious group of people. I'm blanking out on their name. Um, but, you know, there's a point in the game where you have to choose between these two groups that have sort of splintered off um, from the main society before, and now sort of society splits into these two groups um, as far as, like, picking who the political leader will be. And it's interesting to see on a macro perspective how that stuff plays out, but also from the perspective of an individual like Yuna and what her place is in this whole political drama. Um, and I think it's they did a pretty good job with that, and I thought it was really compelling, especially given that they let you see it from an individual's perspective. Ten to- oh, the Youth League. Sorry, the Youth League is the name of the other group. I just remembered. Ah. Go on. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, ten to... Um... She mentioned like ten is a very not or maybe not very somber because like I've still yet to finish it and I don't quite know how to put that first time but like ten seems more of a somber game would that mm-hmm. be right whereas where ten two is more upbeat in tone like yeah how, how, like how did you find the kind of contrast in tone between the two mm-hmm. games anyways yeah I think it's definitely an interesting choice um sort of going off of my answer to your last question. I think it's interesting how, you know, sort of on the surface, it's a very lighthearted game and there's a a lot more humor in 10 to, I think in general in the dialogue and stuff than in 10. So there is a very lighthearted tone throughout the game, but there's also this undercurrent of like the sort of very serious political issues and how they're affecting the lives of like the average person in this country. So like a lot of the game is spent sort of like talking to NPCs and, you kind of get a lot of perspective on that larger conflict from these people. And they're not always, you know, jokey about it. Like, you get some, like, real perspectives from those people that you just encounter. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of nicely balanced out by the more, like, humorous parts. You know, anything from the funny scenes with the three girls and then, like, kind of joking around with each other to, like, the cra- like there's some crazy, like, hilarious quests in that game like the massage one there's one where you like have to massage the enemy leader LeBlanc and you're like dressed up as one of her minions and you like have to do this massage mini game and it's it's really kind of funny um broken up with you know Yuna being really introspective about her position in society and like her future and stuff so I think I kind of like how Ten Two sort of uses its tone but it has more layers than just the lighthearted sort of facade of it. It really kind of has some nice movements and has a kind of complex way of going from humor to more serious stuff and back and has like a nice flow in that way. I think that kept me really engaged because I like, I like having an interplay of those things. You mentioned of, of the humor of the, of that game. Like there wasn't really, um, much humor in the way from from ten, like 
Like, there's there there a little bit, at least from what I've played anyways, but there's yeah. not at the forefront of it anyways. Yeah. I mean, I think in 10, like, it's also just, like, the, the story context scenario really changes that a lot. Like, in 10, because they were still dealing with the threat of that, like, sin, the monster that's basically destroying everything, killing everyone, you know, that was kind of an issue for that, for those characters and for the world of that game at large that, you know, it's, it's very dark. Like, it's everyone's families are dying and they feel like they have no control over it in a lot of ways. And their only hope, you know, is Yuna and these few other people that have a chance at killing this thing. Whereas in Ten Two, it's a little more complicated because that one universal threat is gone. And, like, now the conflict is just between people, which becomes much more complicated. So I think that the tone becoming more complex makes a lot of sense because it's going from one sort of universal problem to a lot of more complicated, smaller, human-sized problems, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, how, how did you find Yuna's ev- evolution from 10 to 10 too? Because, like... Obviously, with everything that happens at the end of ten and that kind of ending, where in especially in um, Zankarland, um, and yeah, just just just, how did you kind of find Unit evolve from ten to ten two? Yeah, I think the evolution is really interesting and is obviously extremely important. And I mean, I think the whole focus of ten two beyond all the political stuff is really like how Yuna has changed and how she is changing. Um, I think that's really the true focus. Um, so of course, you know, in 10, it's sort of like Yuna is obviously a very young woman and she has this one central mission and she's very focused on that and is also sort of involved in this love story. So, you know, she's kind of going through this really intense drama in her life constantly where it's like her, friends and her lover are like in constant peril and she feels like the whole world is on her shoulders so she's kind of this like very serious young woman um and for good reason like she's taking her her mission very seriously because the lives of you know millions of people or whatever are at stake um and she takes that very seriously and of course she sort of gets that love story which you know, usually for, like, people who are falling in love or flirting or whatever, it's kind of fun, but for them, it, it wasn't really fun. So even that was dark, because um, his life is at risk, her life is at risk, everything was kind of, like, sad. Um, so then, of course, you know, all the stuff at the end, spoiler alert, all the stuff at the end of 10 with, you know, Yuna realizing what Titus really is and how he's from the past um, and how he's not, you know, how he's there for a reason that's not necessarily that he's from her same timeline basically um and that he's this like other kind of being um obviously that's a big shock but it also comes along with the sudden realization that her whole journey has ended so this whole chapter of her life kind of comes to a close very abruptly and it's you know that's a really interesting starting point for 10 too like where does someone like that go from there like what happens after your life changes so drastically because of one event especially when you're so young um, so in Ten Two, obviously she's a little bit older, and they definitely present a more mature uh, Yuna, which makes perfect sense because she's growing up. She's gone through all these crazy experiences. She's seen so much, um, and it's really about her growth. And obviously she's grown a lot between Ten and Ten Two, but 
tend to really she gets to like kind of blossom as a person and learn so much about herself over the course of the game and about you know friendship and things that aren't just her romance she really gets to you really as a player get to explore her beyond the romance and beyond her role as sort of this savior and you get to see her more as a person just with her buddies kind of running around the world and solving this mystery and I think that that is a really good way to explore her character to sort of show like She's not just this girl in a love story. She's not just this world savior. Like, she's just this person. Um, and I think that, that that's really interesting. Mm, like, she's just gone from this girl who has basically literally the world on her shoulders yep. at this point to just kind of grown up and just, well, not carefree, but she has a lot more off her shoulders now. Like, mm-hmm. And, and she wants to have, like, a normal life. Like, she wants to live for herself. Mm. Um, and I think that 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 is really important um, as well. Even though she obviously gets involved in another, like, world controversy danger thing, but in the end, that's not really the focus. It's more about, like, her being her own person and, like, living her own life, Um, which I think is really important because in the last game, she wasn't able to live for herself at all. She was living explicitly for everyone else. Um, So I think that is a nice distinction that they took and sort of developed and... Uh, looked at closely in Ten Two. I want to mention uh, itself the group of what is known as Yuripa, as yeah. known <laughs> in Japan. That is the the main name of the group Yuna, Riku, and Pain. Uh, for mm-hmm. those no, uh, who don't know, that's the name from for the group in Japan. Um, and they're her friends that yeah, she's in the uh, sphere group with. Yes. Um, how did you find them together as a pairing then? Like, obviously we knew of you and Riku together from 10, but, like, Pain is a kind of a new addition for 10 too. Like, how did mm-hmm. you find them as a parent and their chemistry? Yeah, uh, I thought they were, I mean, obviously, sort of on the surface level, they're really fun, obviously, drawing some inspiration from something like Charlie's Angels. I had Charlie's Angels as one of my notes as comparisons. Yeah, yeah. I never actually watched any Charlie's Angels, really. Like, I, I watched a little with my mom, I think. I don't know much about it, but they're such a trope that you kind of can't help but see them in the game. <laughs> um, obviously, they're a, an inspiration on it. So you have sort of like, you know, each of the girls has a distinct personality, um, and they play off of each other almost like a comedy trio where, you know, Pain is the very serious one, and Riku's the very, like, jokey, silly one, and Yuna is kind of somewhere in the middle and balances them out a little bit. Um, so they definitely make for a good comedic little group, which I think lends itself to some of the most you know, memorable, adorable scenes in the game, like when they're, for example, stealing the uniforms from those minions in the hot spring, and then they, like, do the little hot spring scene together, and they're, like, kind of pushing each other around and teasing each other about stuff, and it's just, like, I love it because they just show the three women as just, like, friends and just as normal young women kind of messing around with each other like friends do, Um, and I'm really glad that the writers and developers really embrace that human side of them. I think that they really show their human side really well throughout the game, in addition to making them be, like, cool action heroes. (laughs) Um, So I think they did a really good job with the three, and they have really, really good chemistry, and those kind of fun little friendship scenes are really memorable to me. You mentioned friendship as well. Like, friendship is... It's safe to say, right, that it's one of the main themes of the game. Yeah, I think so. 
what other themes kind of stand out for you in terms of Ten Two Animals? I think Ten Two. I mean, obviously friendship. Obviously, stuff I've mentioned before, like um, living for oneself. Like how Yuna kind of learns to live her own life and have some like value herself for her own self sake, um, rather than living for other people. Um, so some kind of nice themes of like almost like not self care, but self esteem um, and caring about yourself. Uh, and also, <clears throat> obviously, there's some like kind of larger political themes that I don't I don't know if I'm like well equipped to discuss them in depth, but just of sort of larger conflict um, where people are trying to like figure out who fits as a leader and what leadership means in a society that has just gone through a great change um, and how that kind of works. Um, and also, uh, definitely themes of like girl power and just like women empowerment and young woman empowerment, um, and that stuff is very, very apparent in the game. I think, um, and I think, yeah, that's the stuff that that comes to mind for me. Definitely the girl power stuff. There's really, really good scenes where Yuna, Riku, and Pain just embrace their femininity and are totally unapologetic about it, and are just like, yep we're cool girls and we will beat you up and we don't care (laughs) and we'll wear cute clothes while doing it and you you have to deal with it um (laughs) so yeah i think those are all the themes that sort of come to mind for me and and collecting some notes for um for this episode like i I see that i saw that um that the fact that it was so kind of girl power focused really that it was kind of one of the issues of the game or that kind of turn people off the game looking back now like that's surely one of the biggest selling points yeah I mean for me and my friends like I mean I don't think I was like thinking about it at the time like I don't think I was as aware of like what the idea of girl power was because I was like 14 I I had no idea but I was like oh my god Charlie's Angels three girls like I was like you know I was a teen I was a teen girl and I saw myself in the characters and that in itself was basically what made me so psyched about it as a kid and I am positive because I've talked to other women of my generation about this that that effect was I think you know for any teen girl that came across this game they were like whoa this this is a game for me um which is really important so exploring uh spiral and um from 10 through to 10 to um like Tent who has a lot more open-endedness to it this time exploring that mm-hmm. world because everywhere is available from the get-go. Yep. And, like, how did you find that, basically? Yeah, I mean, I think about that a lot now, especially as a designer. I think, especially for Final Fantasy games, like, they really, this, I think, was, like, a new direction for them. It was a totally non-linear game in a lot of ways in a really interesting way where, you know, obviously they took advantage of it being a sequel where a lot of these um, parts of the world were already familiar, probably to most players. Um, And I think even a new player would probably not have a hard time understanding um, sort of the system, but yeah, you can go into it and sort of go anywhere. And of course they give you just enough guidance in that the critical path areas are the hot spots. So they're highlighted sort of when you're on your airship and you're able to choose wherever you want to go in the world and they contextualize it really nicely where, you know, the narrative is about the three girls who are sphere hunters, so they just have to go around the world hunting for these spheres. So, yeah, if you're sort of like this this renegade sphere hunter, you need to be able to go anywhere at any moment to go find your, your stuff. There's nothing linear about 
um, that situation of being a sphere hunter. So they have this nice narrative context that sets up this sets it up for this non-linear way of exploring the world where it really is just about exploring and it's about going to all these places, maybe finding some spheres and also being clear about like, okay, here's the amount of, or here, here are the places that you need to go if you want to progress the core story, but we'll let you do all this other cool stuff too. And I think that that, that was really exciting for me. Um, and especially looking at it as a designer now, I think, I think they did it really well. I love the nonlinear nature of the game and I love how the story kind of fits together no matter what order you do it in. I think it's pretty well designed in that sense. And I'm just a huge sucker for like uh, interactions and little moments in games that aren't necessarily like plot related. So, you know, there's tons of little weird mini games and stuff that you can do and off of the critical path like that. Um, actually that massage mini game I think is on the critical path. Um, but, you know, like, for example, there are all these things you can do where you can go back and hang out with Lulu and Waka, who you met in the first game, and that stuff's not necessarily um, tied to the critical path. But you can go do it, and you can see these little scenes and have these interactions, you know, help Waka go find some sphere that relates to his his dead brother, for example. And you can kind of just feel like you have the freedom to unfold the story in whatever way you want, and I think that that, that feels really good. Um, and I think is a really nice contrast to 10, which was quite linear. Um, I think they did a really good job with it. Like, how, how important was that for you in terms of the game giving you that much freedom of choice? I really like it, and I actually, in retrospect, like, I think, I think it worked so well because the game is really non-linear in all respects in that even the battle system is, is non-linear in a sense, where, like, you know, in 10 the turn-based system is, you know, you go through turns sort of A, B, C um, in order. Whereas in 10-2, it's more of a real-time battle system, so you can sort of, like, chain these attacks together in real time, depending on how fast you're reacting. Um, so that kind of takes on a non-linear nature. And also the um, dress sphere system, where you can kind of choose whatever class you want your characters to have, and they can have... They can be, like, have all classes available to them, and you can kind of switch in and out of classes in a nonlinear way while you're fighting, or level up your characters with whatever class you want. So there's basically freedom of choice at all levels in this game, whether it's the battle system or the way you're exploring the world. Um, and I think that consistency really works in its favor, um, and... I think helps make it clear that, yeah, this game is supposed to be played in a nonlinear way, and you're it, it enables you to really express what is important to you about the game in its systems, where you can really just engage with it in the way that you like and see the things that you want. Um, and I think that, that that is a really powerful thing for like a character-driven narrative game to accomplish. I think it's, it's really good. How, how do you find um, modern games that handle open worlds these days? How, how do you handle uh, open worlds and games these days like mm -hmm. like what what worlds stand out for you in terms of recent games I don't know I actually I actually tend to not be super into too many open world games because I often get a little overwhelmed I think actually what Final Fantasy 10 2 does really well is it's basically an open world game but it's very constrained mm. um, so it's it's hard to get kind of overwhelmed because it's always very clear you know 
who you are and where you're going and what you can do next. Like, there's always... I always felt clear when I was playing Final Fantasy X, too. Like, okay, there is a certain number of places I can go, and, like, I don't have to do them if I don't want, but it's not, like, seemingly infinite. Like, as much as I respect and think games like Oblivion, for example, are amazing, like, they're truly incredible games, I personally can't get as into them because... I don't get to become intimate with any characters because I'm just exploring so much stuff. And it's really more about the world than any characters in it, I think. Whereas Final Fantasy X-2 has sort of this open world setup, but really it's more about the characters. And it's, it's, the, world is, the world you can explore and the way you explore it is constrained to those characters and your understanding of them. And to the world is really there to support them to support the characters and the story um, rather than being about the act of exploring the world itself. Um, and I think both approaches are valid and interesting, but the one that appeals to me is definitely the character-driven one. Mm. Uh, for me, um, talking about fairly recent RPGs that I've had really massive open worlds, I've been kind of, yeah, like, like you said, I've been overwhelmed as well with games like The Witcher 3 and mm-hmm. how... how how massive that game is! Like I can respect what CD Projekt did, but Jesus, like that that world is just maybe a bit it's huge. huge. It's huge. Same for um, Xenoblade Chronicles. X. Yeah, like that. That's huge. It like, is. That's, that's that's that's. I'm not exaggerating when I say that. It's like it's fucking huge. Like yeah, and I think that 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 is interesting in itself. But for me, like I tend to be less attracted to those games. But I know a lot of people who would rather play that over a character-driven game any day, so it also is kind of up to taste at a certain point. Um, but yeah, I, I've been playing Xenoblade as well. I actually played a lot of that game, and I really like it, but it is a ton of stuff, <laughs> and I get overwhelmed really easily. <laughs> it's, it's, it's definitely a massive time sink. Like, I've heard, mm-hmm. like, you don't get you don't get your mech until you're literally about 100 hours on. Like, that's, mm-hmm. that's insane. That's very intense. <laughs> uh, hundred hours in would be enough for anyone for the game. Like just end it there. But hundred hours in just to get the main point of the game. Yeah. It's it's it's, it's insane. Yeah, and like on that note, what I like about Ten Two so much is that I still get that feeling of exploring freely that I get from Xenoblade, but I know when to move on. The game makes it clear to me when I can proceed with the story and when like you know, when, like, okay, I've explored enough open stuff for now, like, let's get on with it. Um, and that, the way the game sort of moved you through it while still giving you freedom is what I find really, um, uh, I feel really engaged with that as a player, and I really enjoy that. So, you mentioned it in part there uh, just a second ago, but, yeah, um, the active time battle system for 10-2, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's very much tweaked from 10, like, yeah, when, when you encounter an enemy um, in ten, like this would be under the the normal ATV system, but yeah. in, ten, the, in ten two, the player has the chance to interrupt the enemy whilst they're getting ready to attack. Like, how did you find? How did you get on with that system at that time? I remember when I first played it, I was like, "Whoa, this feels good." I was like, "This battle system feels good in a way that," I mean, I also liked ten's battle system well enough. Like, I thought it was really fun, but. There's definitely something to say for that kind of snappiness of the real-time battle system and just feeling like the 
the fights are really moving along and it's all kind of about like your reaction time and and planning in the moment everything feels very in the moment intent to and i think the battle system really emphasizes that um whereas with 10 i always felt like i was a little more like okay i have to sit back and plan this um and i thought that was fun for me but i also kind of like the more in the moment um fast snappy stuff um and i think that that fits with the the tone and the pacing of the game in in 10 you know it's a little bit of a slower slow burn game definitely not like slow in a bad way but like it's it's it gradually builds um whereas 10-2 is a very fast-paced game and i think the battle system reflects that um and i i really like when battle systems kind of reflect narrative um tones like that narrative pacing um so i think yeah in 10-2 it was really effective for me 10-2 has also um a kind of a first for the series as far as i'm uh aware so i hope i'm correct with that anyways um it has a mission system yeah how did you find that because it's it's weird to have a final fantasy game with a mission system at least a numbered final fantasy animals well what i like about the mission system is that they were able it kind of gave the designers a space to make these sort of like to let the player experience these smaller scenarios that don't necessarily have any plot significance. I think I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but, like, the little massage scene. That's, like, part of a mission where, like, that's one small part of it, but it's sort of this condensed little mission about being in this one space in in your, like, um, in LeBlanc's base and doing a bunch of things in there and really, like, learning about the people who are in there and kind of, like, going through this drama with them. And I think that they make for really nice narrative nuggets, and I like how they're able to tie the mechanics into those narrative nuggets, like having a massage minigame. Like, I think that stuff is awesome. And another mission that sticks out to me was the one where it was like a flashback mission where it's about when they find out there's someone, like, posing as Yuna in her concert, and Riku and Payne have to go in and, like, figure out who the imposter is. But Yuna can't go in because they think she'll get arrested because people would be like, no, Yuna's on stage. Like, we have to arrest this imposter, even though the imposter is really the one on the stage. So Yuna is outside of the concert, like, dressed up in a Moogle costume, and you just do this mission where Yuna, like, gets roped into handing out flyers for her own show that her imposter is playing, and she's wearing a Moogle suit. (laughs) Um, Oh, wait, she's handing out balloons that, like, act as flyers, I guess. I don't know. But it's got all these, like, kind of quirky moments with weird little one-off mechanics that I think are just fun. And they're all really simple, and they just have these nice little narrative nuggets in them. And I think that the mission structure really supports that kind of experimentation within the system, and I really, really like it. We mentioned it in part there a few months ago, but yeah, the, the mini games for Ten too. Like, obviously, um, there is Blitzball, and there is Chocobo Reason, but... The biggest introduction in terms of that, uh, in terms of the minigames, was Sphere Break. I actually didn't get too into... I actually really liked Blitzball in 10 a lot. I think Blitzball's really good. Um, I didn't get into Sphere Break, though. It didn't draw me in as much as Blitzball did. Hmm. Um, I think for me, the minigames that were more interesting are sort of the one-off narrative-focused ones that you encounter either during missions or as full missions. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I didn't end up getting that into Sphere Break. It's not... Not necessarily the kind of game I get super excited about. Um, I really like the little narrative snippet games that you get 
in Ten Two the most, I think. Endings. What what one did you get? Because Ten Two has multiple endings. So what yeah. one did you get? Um. Oh God. I mean, when I was younger, um, the first time I played it, I just got like the normal good ending where Titus doesn't turn up. That's one of the endings, right? Yeah. It is. Trouble remembering. Yeah, I got the normal ending that was like the non one hundred percent completion ending. I think that might be my favorite ending because it really emphasizes Yuna kind of coming into her own and taking care of herself, even though I also adore her love story with Titus. So if I could have both, (laughs) that would be the best. I think you do kind of get both from the perfect ending. Um, But yeah, I remember playing through to that ending, and even though, you know, Titus doesn't come back in that ending in the way he does in the other one, it still felt so satisfying to me. Um... Just because I was like, okay, yeah, like, this, she really grew as a person, and I got to, like, go along on that journey with her and with her friends, and it just, like, felt good. It's just a, it's a feel-good ending, I felt like, for me. Um, I liked it. It's interesting you put it across like that, because, like, in dealing with the, I get the feeling that, obviously, I've not played the game to completion, I'm just going off notes, but, like, when you put it like that, it just feels like she's dealing with a bit of a loss here very well so mm-hmm. think, because she doesn't have Titus there no more like, so she has to kind of like right this is it I'm, uh, I love him and I miss him but I have to just kind of get my shit together and move on basically mm-hmm. in a sense yeah yeah and I think that's sort of what I meant by like she's really come into her own and she you know it's about how she's come to sort of understand how to live for herself rather than for other people. Um, and I think that's, like, that's not an ending we see in games very often. You know, it's, it's a pretty unusual ending. Um, and I think because of that, it, it makes it really special. Hmm. It's a very character-focused ending. I like that. So, what else do you like about Ten Two that we've not talked about tonight? Hmm. I just think, uh, I guess in my most recent playthrough, the things that I really, that really stuck out to me were... You know, things we've talked about, like the quirky minigames um, and the consistency of the pacing of the battle system with the pacing of the game and the non-linear quality of, of dress fears and exploration. I think that, that stuff is all really special. Um, but I just love the dialogue in this game. And, like, I think whoever localized it did such a good job because I just find myself cracking up at stuff in this game um, I don't know if I can, like, quote anything off the top of my head, but stuff like that massage minigame, just, like, the things uh, Yuna sort of says when she's in costume, or, like, that Moogle minigame I explained earlier when they, like, kind of put the Moogle costume on Yuna. It's just, like, really funny. And, you know, games don't always have a lot of humor, and this game has a lot of humor, and I think that that is really cool. Um, it's cool to see a game like that embrace funny stuff and embrace snappy dialogue um, in a way that we don't always see in games. Um, you know, a lot of games, I feel like I always play so many serious games, and Ten was so serious. And it was just nice to have something like lighthearted where the characters are like joking with each other. I think that that, that is really sweet, and I like it a lot. What didn't you like about Ten Two? What didn't I like? Oh god, what didn't I like? I feel like I liked everything about it. Um, I guess for me... Let's see. What didn't I like? I mean, I guess for me, like, you know, 
the plot is good with the Vagnagon and like everything with Shu Yin and Len and all of that stuff. But you know, that's not that's not the stuff that I end up caring about in that game. And I actually, I think it's in a lot of ways, I kind of wish it was a game that was just about these three girls being sphere hunters and just doing sphere hunter missions rather than it being again about like a big drama that Yuna gets involved in because she is kind of around for it and is kind of drawn into it because of who she is. Um, and you know, her, her, her place is an important person in the society, etc. Um, so, you know, if, if I were to make fi- a Final Fantasy X-2 kind of game, it would probably not have the big overarching dramatic plot. I think they did it well, and I like it. Um, but as a designer, I'm more interested in the smaller, more everyday life stuff. Um, and I, I think that, that that's the best part of the game for me, and the other stuff for me is almost like frosting like the plot is good and cool um but it's not the meat of the game for me um so i wouldn't say i like hated it or anything but it's not my focus personally i think you may have just answered my next question but i'll ask it i was like <laughs> what, what, what what would you change from a design perspective mm-hmm. yeah i guess i would just have the game be all like of those weird little mini games and the little vignette scenes that they have um, and I would go, you know, even even further with just making every mission be kind of about that, like, just like the Moogle scene where she's giving out balloons. Like, if every mission was something like that, <laughs> I would be really happy. <laughs> I just like the little little scenes um, with clever little mechanics. Um, that's the stuff I re- get really excited about. So seeing more of that is something I would always like. So moving on... Uh... From ten two, but same with Final Fantasy. Like going further into the series, like from ten to onwards, uh, at least in terms of the number of games. Like, how have you found those kind of games? Obviously, eleven is like a big part, a big you know, a big part of uh, Sable. But like mm-hmm. moving moving onwards from there, like how how have you found the series? To be honest, like I was super into ten, ten two, and eleven, and I played 11 for like so many years (laughs) like I actually didn't play that many other games while I was playing it so I guess I remember playing I forget which number it is but the one with Vaughn and Penelo 12 yeah 12 and and the first in the series of lightning focused games um but I don't know I never like finished any of those games I never got super into them I I liked what I played of them but I was so addicted to MMOs (laughs) to Final Fantasy Online that I never got super deep into them and haven't really had a chance to pick them up since. Um, so I guess I don't I don't have that much to say on that front other than I did pick up Final Fantasy Type O HD and that is probably one of my favorite games now. I really love it. I know it came out before. I think it came out a long time ago. Obviously, this is a remake um, of the PSP game. Um, but Type O kind of embraces a lot of the same stuff that I really liked about Ten Two, with sort of interesting scenes and character-driven stuff and sort of little vignettes and, and um, mini-scenes and lots of kind of experimental narrative stuff is in that game um, that I find really interesting. So for anyone who liked Ten Two or is interested in these kind of quirkier Final Fantasy games, I think Typo is 
the way to go. It's a really, really good game. Um, have you tried 14 at all? Uh, that's the new online one, yes, right? Yes, that's the new one. Yes. Uh, I played, like, the beta, I think, a little bit, and then played a couple sessions with a friend, like, a month ago. Um, I, like, really want to get into it, but I just haven't had the time. I think it, it seems super good, and it seems like they really have iterated on what 11 was and have taken it to really great places. I have a ton of friends who are playing it who are super excited about it. Um, a lot of designer friends, actually. Um, so hear a lot of good things about that game. I've played not enough of it to really say for myself, but I, I like the, the world that I've seen in it, and it seems super solid. I think it's really cool. Uh, is there any excitement at all, any anticipation then for 15 or 7 remake coming? Like- yeah, I uh, tonally from what I've, I've seen, I've seen a little bit of humor, and I, I hope they run with that. I'm excited to see where they go with that. I like the idea of like the road trip in the game. I hope that there's a lot of that, um, and I, I, I find it to be compelling so far. And I hope that it embraces some of the silliness that I feel like I've seen in some of the footage. Um, I haven't I haven't played the demo yet, um, but I'm definitely uh, keeping my hopes up. I think actually did the director of it also do Typo? I think he did. Yeah, uh, yes, Hajim yeah. Tabata. Yes, he did Typo. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think if it has anything in common with Typo, I'll probably really like it. <laughs> um, what about Seven Remake? Um, yeah, I, I'll, I'm interested to see what they do with that. Um, I never played 7 myself, actually, uh, so that might be a chance for me to go check it out. I'll probably, it'll probably be the reason why I go back and play the original, because I'd love to play both and compare them and, and see how that works out. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see how that works out and how the fans will, what, how the fans will feel about it, because it's definitely, you know they wouldn't be making it if there wasn't a demand and a fan base for it. So I'm excited to see how people react to it. Hmm. When we got the gameplay footage of the remake last year, like the first thought that came into my head uh, was, besides the fact that, okay, this looks fucking awesome, the fact, yeah. that it, the fact that tonally it looks very much like Versus 13, or what was Versus 13 before it became 15. And I just felt like, I just felt like that just felt like a loss in itself because like don't, don't get me wrong there's elements of 15 or elements of versus 13 that still remain in 15 but like as a whole versus 13 seems like a much more appealing sort of game if you get what I mean mm-hmm. like, like certainly from what the, from the version that they showed uh, for the last time in 2011 before it came, became 15 and seeing that 7 footage it just felt like fuck, I really want Versus 13 more now. <laughs> yeah, I don't know much about the Versus game. I'm not super familiar with it, but um, that remake looked pretty cool to me. Right. Top three Final Fantasy games. Well, how would you rank it? Obviously 10-2 at the top, and I would assume... Yeah, like, I, I would like, say... Sorry, yeah, what did you say? Yeah, I was going to say... Um, I was going to assume 11 would be in there as well. Like. Yeah, for me it'd probably be... 10 to 10 and then 11. Um, I think that would be it. I really like, I mean, uh, which number? I always like get the numbers wrong. The one with Squall and Renoa. I like that one. That's, I haven't finished it, but I actually have been playing it and I like it so far. Um, that's, that one actually has a lot of humor too. That's uh, that's that's eight. Mm-hmm. That would be on the list, but probably maybe fourth or something. Um, 
but yeah, 11 has to be on it because I played it for so damn long. <laughs> uh, definitely a formative game in my life. Um, but yeah, 10 to at, at the top for sure. mentions Head up. okay uh i guess honorable mentions would be the other ones i considered bringing up for this show were xenosaga which is a game that i uh, was it's another jrpg sort of a more of a sci-fi one um and that game is also pretty much character driven and i just I always loved the... I've always been really into stories about, like, computers shaped like humans. (laughs) I'm a huge fan of that anime Chobits, which also does that, and Xenosaga, I think, probably got me interested in that sort of thing to begin with. Um, And it has, like, a cool, like, badass lady engineer is, like, one of the main characters, and I just thought she was, like, the coolest when I was growing up. Um, In addition to, like, lots of... The art was, like, kind of anime, and I've always been an anime fan, so I think it probably appealed to me for that reason as well, and story is really interesting and I'm super fascinated with Soraya Soraya Saga, um, one of the writers on the game. Um, She's been a figure that I've been interested in. She also worked on some Final Fantasy games. Um, So that was another one I I considered. Um, What else? I I always want to talk about Gone Home because I love it but now that I work for for Fulbright I feel like I would be a little weird. I didn't work on that game. It's like one of the games that actually got me into games um, that got me excited about them. Um, so shout out to that game. I think everyone should play it. Um, also, Kentucky Route Zero, which I know you know isn't fully out yet. It's an episodic game, um, but that's a game that has some of the most incredible writing. Um, and as someone whose background is in poetry, um, they make lots of interesting references. And I know I've been to talks by the developers, and they're very much inspired by poetry and by theater and by all these other disciplines, and I think that that shows in the game and is really, really interesting. Um, So I guess those those are a few. Top three games ever. How would you go from there? Ever? Yeah. I feel like that probably will, like, that, like, changes on a daily basis, I would say. I guess Final Fantasy X-2. Of course. Definitely Gone Home. Um, Oh, what, what, what would be the third? That's, I guess Dysphoria. Dysphoria is probably one of the most important games to me as a designer. It's one of those first games that I, that I played that made me realize I could make games too and that I could make them be personal. Um, so Anne Anthropy and her work, and especially Dysphoria, have had a huge influence on me. So I guess that would be at the top as well.
Morning. What's up? Not much. Want to do a run together? Yeah. Let's touch upon uh, Sable Run. Um, I, pl- I I bought this last week just to kind of do some research before I, um, I, I did this episode. And, I, and truth be told, I actually really wanted to buy, uh, buy it because so many people have been going on about how awesome Sable is. I know... Um, Keith Stewart, <laughs> I know Keith Stewart has been pushing it very hard, um, personally and professionally, um, on uh, every other level, and I can also see why it's such a great game. I really enjoy oh, playing thank it. You. Um, thank you for playing. Uh, thank you for making it. Um, Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> but that being said, when I finished it, um, I, I must admit there's very there was a certain sense of uncertainty on my part on whether I should have played it or not. Because of how personal it was. Now, mm-hmm. I, now I know you've made pers- um, your, your games in the past have been very personal. And admittedly, um, Siebel is the first game that I've played from you that is that personal. But like, even still, there is that sense of should I be playing this? Like, because it is so personal, and, and I'm a sucker for anything personal, like whether it be writing mm-hmm. games or whatever. But even still, like. I think for me when playing Siebel it's just a case of how much is too much? How how personal is too personal in a way? I think with Sybil, uh, a lot of the reason why people feel like it's so personal, because you know, ultimately it's based on my life, but it's also authored, like I treated it very much like a story. So it's not it's not like you're actually like looking into my past. Like it's not my diary or anything. It's it's oh. fully a story. Um but some an interesting effect that I found um, in the way that you know, as a designer, I chose to tell the story, which is through her computer by looking through her emails and looking at her pictures and playing as her. And since you're playing as her, you obviously have access to all the things that she is using on her computer. Um, and I find that in society, we have a lot of anxiety around access and technology and privacy. Um, So I think that the fact that the mechanic itself is something that we have a lot of social anxiety about and that, like, it's basically the equivalent of, like, you know, looking at taking someone's phone and unlocking it and looking at it, which is something that we're conditioned not to do and to think is very bad to do. Um, People get a little freaked out by that mechanic, but I think generally people warm up to it because I think most players, at least in my experience playtesting, kind of come into into the performative aspect of it and realize that, yes, they're playing as this girl. They're performing as her, so these are, are there as the player character things. They, they have access to it because it's their stuff um, while they're sort of performing. Um, you know, I can't, no one can create perfect suspension of disbelief, but I think for most players, they they get there um, at a certain point in the game um, because it really is more about that performance. Um, But our societal anxiety around that kind of thing um, fights against that, and I I think that's actually kind of an interesting thing that I have noticed um, as people have been playing this game out in the world. Mm, How how have you found the kind of reception to it so far, Anonymous? Like, Mm -hmm. seeing people just kind of... Like, yeah, just basically, how, how have you found it so far, like, in terms of reception? Yeah, um, I think, I mean, overall, it's been super positive. I 
get lots of emails from people personally reaching out to me to be like basically sharing their personal stories with me in response being like oh yeah like I had an online boyfriend or girlfriend too like I met someone I'm really close to online or like I know someone who like was in a very similar situation um so generally the reaction to this and to other personal games that I've worked on is usually people reaching out to share their stories with me, which is kind of interesting. Um, so I'd say because of that, definitely a very positive reception. Hmm, fantastic. I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah. Um, I want to mention about the nature of all the personal games, like uh, on the level, uh, Stable, like, like games like Her Story, Everybody's Gone to the Rapture, and even Gone Home. And perhaps to a lesser extent, or even to a more much bigger extent um, The Binding of Isaac because The Binding of Isaac feels more like an autobiography of um, Ed McMillan's life to to an extent and like I had this conversation with someone uh, on the show about The Binding of Isaac because she had picked it as her favourite game to talk about on the show and we discussed how Isaac was more of an autobiographical game and how games have that personal outlet to it that with, with games like Isaac, like her story, Rapture, Gone Home, and all that there. So, like, how, how do you see the nature of personal games, like, from when you started out uh, making out games to now, in a way, and how, how do you think they fit in between something like, say, hmm, let me think, like, among the likes of... I don't know if I want to compare it to say the big AAA games because that's a bit of a bit of an unfair comparison, but that's the only thing I can think of right now, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think it's interesting in games. Like, you know, I come from poetry where like people write about their own lives all the time, and it's not something that's really talked about. It's just something that people do. And in games, people really like are always like, oh, personal games, and they really want to like kind of talk about them as this thing. But really, I think that almost all games are personal games to a certain extent. I think that designers and writers almost always, if not just most of the time, put a little bit of themselves into their games. Um, You know, obviously there are personal games like the ones I work on that where I'm like pretty upfront with how personal they are. Although to be fair in Sybil, I do say it's based on a true story. I don't actually refer to it as a personal game um, because I think that term has become kind of loaded. Um, but, you know, in film, things are based on a true story. Like, there, there's a pretty strong tradition of that kind of writing. Um, and I think, you know, ultimately when you're telling stories, it's like, how can you write about something that's just, like, entirely not your experience? Like, you can only write about what you know to a certain extent. So I think that because of that, uh, people sort of become a part of their art, whether they realize it or not. And I think more often than not, people are doing it on purpose. Even, you know, for Sybil, obviously, based on my own life, um, I know I've talked to, Steve has done a bunch of interviews where he's, you know, said there are certain parts of Gone Home that he drew on his own um, youth for. Um, I remember I was on Twitter one time and I saw Cliffy B tweeting about how parts of Gears of War were based on his personal life. Um, And, you know, famously Miyamoto, who says that the Zelda series was inspired by his childhood spent exploring um, the woods and the caves around his um, childhood home in Japan. Um, So I think that the personal nature of games is more present than a lot of people expect. 
Um, it's just that, you know, now some people are really like sort of like what I've done in some cases being like, yeah, this is explicitly based on, on it, my experiences. Um, I think that that, that is one thing, but I think often people just, things are personal, but people don't feel the need to state it, but it's just a part of their process. I think that that, that's true for a lot of writing, um, and a lot of games, um, in my experience. This, this may touch upon what you've just said, but like, even with games that maybe not aren't necessarily planned from the outset as a personal game, but the more you get into it and the more you find stuff in that game that you can really resonate with, like, those are really personal moments to to you and you alone as playing the game because like example that stands out for me is and I've said this before this past year and a half or so for reasons um, Metal Gear Solid 3 and mm-hmm. the boss stands out for me um, because she is absolutely my favourite character in a game ever um, not just for the fact that she is so strong willed she is this powerful no shit no nonsense taken soldier but also because she has this motherly instinct and I played Metal Gear Solid 3 for a part of my life which was for which was basically in turmoil because around that time my mum was out and subsequently mm-hmm. soon after um, she had actually passed away but Metal Gear Solid 3 got me through that period when I was playing it on the Vita beside her uh, at her bedside and just playing it and seeing the boss in that game, there was traits of her that I could honestly associate with my mother at that time mm-hmm. uh, because, like, she was, you know, God love her. She was, you know, fighting and, like, there's strong world and to the end. And even, like I said, even with games that aren't personal from the outset, like, there's always something that, that even you could connect on, even on a personal mm-hmm. level. And that, for me, was Metal Gear Solid 3. So, I think... I'm trying to figure out the right words to say this, but in a sense, it's 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 a godsend that those games can be there. Yeah, I mean, I think games with really human-seeming characters, with characters that, like you were saying, you can relate to and you can see reflections of yourself or of people you know in them, I think that that is really powerful. Um, whether the character is really based on someone's personal life or if they just made a character that feels really true and human and genuine. Um, I think that that, you know, that's something I focus on. I think that that is something really powerful in games in general mm-hmm. that choose to do that. Obviously, uh, Seville, uh the main core of it is romance and mm-hmm. uh, sex in, in a way. Um, like, how... How do you think games have handled romance and sex in games like before Seville and up until now? Because like the main, the main kind of uh, tar- maybe not target, but like the main game that stands out for me that I think has handled love and sex to an extent really well is Catherine, but mm-hmm. also as well like there are most games that have done it really bad as well. Um, and that, and the one example of that that springs to mind is the sex scene in Heavy Rain. Um, but you also mentioned earlier like how Final Fantasy X was a love story of sorts. And mm-hmm. so, like, how do you think games have helped ha- handle romance and sex in games? And mm-hmm. like, what are your hopes of seeing at least decent portrayals of romance from here on out? Sure. After so yeah, as far as love and sex in games, I mean, I think you know people have been making games that have 
themes or stories about love and sex for a really long time. Um, I think it, it's interesting because they've been around, but I think only now are we just starting to kind of talk about them more seriously. Um, but yeah, like you said, Catherine is a really interesting example. I really, really like that game. Um, I've actually been spending a lot of time playing Otome games, so Japanese, um, usually Japanese-made um, visual novel games um, that are usually about um, dating. You're usually playing a girl who can date a bunch of boys, basically, um, and they're like games that are targeted at women that are sort of like straight romance games. Um and I, I played one recently called Amnesia Memories, and it's done by this this studio in Japan that also did a game called Hakuoki, which is, uh, I believe, a pretty well-known um, otome game. And those are really interesting because they're, you know, romance games targeted at women specifically. Um, I'm, I'm a pretty big fan of otome games. I would recommend Amnesia Memories to, to people. It's really good. And those are totally focused on the relationships. So those are really interesting, and there's games like Cara Ellison made Sacrilege, which I think is a really interesting little game about kind of a night at the club and, and dating and, and um, this one sort of specific story of, uh, I believe it's based on Cara, um, of her and these guys that she's kind of flirting with at this club. Um, you know, there's like the Final Fantasy games, which almost always have a love story, I think, like most Final Fantasy games have had a love story. This Kingdom Hearts, which kind of has a love story. You know, like, you kind of actually see this a lot in games. Um, but, you know, you most often see it sort of in the story portion of the game and not necessarily integrated mechanically, which is kind of interesting. I think that, that that's something that can be explored more. I know Anna Anthropy, um, I forget what it's called, but she made a game about um, cuddling while in a polyamorous relationship where really the mechanics are about the cuddling and that that's a really interesting example of sort of a relationship being used to create a mechanic, um, to inform a mechanic. Um, so I think there are a lot of really interesting examples of it and, you know, we're just kind of starting to talk about them more actively, which I think is really good. Um, so I think it's, it's a pretty exciting time for that kind of game. I kind of wish we lived closer. Would you want to meet up with me, like, in real life? So, I guess for folks who are listening that maybe aren't familiar with my work or anything, my site is nina says.so. That is n i n a s a y s dot s o. 
Um, a lot of my, I have a lot of like free games that I worked on as a designer on that site that are like little flash games that you can play on the games page. Um, information to, to get Sybil is also on there and the Sybil website, which is linked there, but I'll just say it here, SybilGame.com, spelled C-I-B-E-L-E, game.com. And my Twitter is HentaiPhD, which is spelled H-E-N-T-A-I-P-H-D. Um, and links to all my stuff is there as well. Um, but free games on my site. Uh, Sybil is also linked on my site. So check it out. Do check out. Oh, Sybil. and also check out Tacoma, which isn't out yet, but we have a trailer up. I'm working at Fulbright as a level designer on a game called Tacoma. Um and the website where the Tacoma trailer is presently is tacoma-game.com. Tacoma is spelled T-A-C-O-M-A. Um, and that is my current project um, that I'm working on as a level designer. Um, and it is going to be a very exciting game, so please look forward to it. Be very excited for Tacoma. That is looking Yay. very awesome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what can I do for you? <laughs> Thanks for listening to my favourite game. Next week, David Goldfarb on Diablo 2. Until next week, bye-bye.